Welcome to Bare Roots, the podcast that unearths the truth. Allegedly. We're your hosts. I'm Alina. And I'm Shannon. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Bare Roots. Today, we have an exciting episode because it is spooky season part two. So that's right. We're continuing the spooky season and we're diving into a little russian spooky hiking situation do we know what happened no we don't but there are going to be some amazing theories that we're talking about today so shannon how are you feeling about today's episode i'm feeling good i'm feeling good about the second installment to spooky season this was an episode that was requested by one of our listeners a while ago but i wanted to save it for spooky season because it is certainly spooky Mm -hmm. so I'm excited to jump into it today. Yes, I'm excited as well. And don't worry, guys, we're going to sneak in another spooky episode to round it out this year. So stay tuned for our next episode. Ooh, what could it be? Maybe if you followed us on Instagram, we give you a little teaser, but we also left you on a cliffhanger because I realized (laughs) I didn't say or anything about where we were, what we were doing, and maybe this mysterious, you know, conversation that we're having will lure you to the next episode. But without further ado, let's dive in into the Russian spooky season. (laughs) Okay, let's do this. Today we're talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident. And I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. We did, right before hitting record, look up the pronunciation. Dyatlov incident of 1959. So let's just dive into it. It was a cold trek for the nine experienced hikers in the Ural Mountains on February 1st, 1959. The group was led by Igor Dyatlov from the Ural Polytechnic Institute, which was as you can imagine, a university. He had planned a winter expedition that would exemplify the boldness and vigor of the new Soviet generation. They established camp on the eastern slopes of Kolat Sayaki, probably. There's going to be, yeah, there's going to be a lot of names that we just need you guys to work with us. We apologize. We're so sorry. (laughs) We are working with very limited... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Russian knowledge and um, have only been trained in partially romance languages so really got nothing yes please bear with us but anyway this mountain it can be translated to a dead mountain in the local language after losing their way due to weather and decreased visibility they settled on this eastern slope It would have been another mile downhill to make it back to the forest, and it's believed that Igor wouldn't have wanted to lose that altitude, and that's why they landed here. All of them were incredibly young as they were students. Eight were between the ages of 20 and 24, and the ninth was 38 years old. All had the highest hiking certificate available at the Soviet Union at the time. So these are not amateur hikers. These are basically the most experienced hikers that you can get out of the Soviet Union at this time. Yeah, exactly. They are 
very well trained and very much prepared for this trip. It is not known what transpired on the mountain that night, but what we do know is this. Something caused the nine hikers to cut themselves out of their tents and flee into the sub-zero temperatures without gear. And I feel like this is the part where people hone in, rightfully so, because that is so freaky to think about trying to escape using, you know, your knife, whatever that's on you to get out of your tent when you could easily, you know, do a little zipper motion and get Mm -hmm. out. But clearly it was a desperate time for them to need to get out immediately quickly and not use the zipper or it wasn't working or something to want to even go into these freezing cold temperatures. What could have caused them to want to leave a tent? Right. And all of them, again, are experienced and know like, hey, it's cold outside. We will die if we go out there without all of our gear. And they still did it. So they had to be scared unbelievably so. Mm-hmm. So nobody knows exactly what happened that night. But all nine bodies were eventually found. It would be close to two weeks, two to three weeks, before any search and rescue was even started because they were supposed to make it back by, I believe, February 12th. And so the people that were looking out for them just kind of gave them some leeway because they're like, oh, of course, you know, there are hold holdups. It's fine to be a couple of days behind, but they still weren't coming. So then the families started getting really antsy. And finally on February 26th, so we're going from February 1st to February 26th, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent and the the campsite baffled the search party. And the search party was made up of students, you know, fellow students and just the local tribesmen and volunteers. It's just like a whole modgepodge of people trying to help and find these nine hikers. The student who found the tent said, quote, the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all of the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Empty as in people, not empty as in things. I was reading that everything was set up like they had just started preparing dinner and then it was completely abandoned, even their boots. Investigators said that the tent had been cut open from the inside And again, everything was neat and orderly on the inside. Nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks or a single shoe or even barefoot. They could see the toes in the footprints. They were followed leading down the slope to the edge of the nearby forest on the opposite side of the pass. And after 1600 feet, these tracks were covered in snow at the forest edge under a large pine tree, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire. And that's where they found the first two bodies of the students, shoeless and dressed only in underwear. The branches on the tree were broken up to five meters high, suggesting that they climbed up to look for something, perhaps their tent. You know, if there was a storm and they couldn't see through, they tried climbing, but they broke all the branches down. Between the pine and the camp, the searchers found three more bodies, and those who died here were in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. They were kind of reaching towards the tent itself. 
The remaining four hikers were finally found on May 4th, so a few months after the fact, under 13 feet of snow in a ravine 246 feet further into the woods from that pine tree. Three of the four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that some of the clothing of those who died first had been removed for use of the others. So they that could explain some of the uh, bodies that were found in underwear because they stripped them to try to warm themselves up more. Mm-hmm. Six of the nine had died from hypothermia and nine or and three died from physical trauma. One had major skull damage. Two had severe tr- chest trauma. And all of these would have needed to be caused by extreme force. This was not something that could be uh, afflicted on by a human hand they kept saying equivalent to a car crash is the kind of pressure that would need to put on these bodies which is insane to think about four were found in a creek three of which had soft tissue damage to their heads and faces so two of the bodies were missing their eyes one was missing their tongue and one was missing its eyebrows It was determined that these injuries were caused post-mortem and traces of radioactivity were found on some of, on two of their clothes, like two people's clothes. Weirdly enough, there were signs of glowing orange spheres floating in the sky. They were reported that night, the night that all of this happened. At the end of the day, though, the investigation concluded that a, quote, compelling natural force had caused the deaths. And that's kind of where they closed it in 1959. They kind of said avalanche, but they didn't really have that much evidence towards it. And they kind of just closed it as compelling natural force. It wasn't until 2019 that Russia opened a new investigation on the incident. And its conclusions were presented in July of 2020, so obviously extremely recently. Mm-hmm. And they concluded that an avalanche had led to the deaths. And they surmised that survivors of the avalanche had been forced to suddenly leave their camp in low visibility conditions with inadequate clothing and died of hypothermia. A study published in 2021 suggested that the type of avalanche known as a slab avalanche could explain some of the injuries. The mountain pass in that area was later named Dyatlov Pass in memory of the group. However, the incident occurred about 1,700 meters away on the eastern slope of that mountain, Dead Mountain. And a prominent rock outcrop in the area is now a memorial for the group. It's located about 500 meters east, southeast of the actual site of the final camp. Yeah, just so many weird things. I can only imagine being a part of that search team and finding them and just witnessing all of the weird things, like finding the guys naked. But then it makes sense because they probably, whoever were survivors, you know, tried to stay warm with their clothes. And like, what happened? Clearly, it didn't all happen at one time. It wasn't like a mm-hmm. rush, you know, everyone passed at one time and they were just like found in different areas. There was something that happened and it concluded into obviously they're passing away. Yeah, and I, I knew the story briefly. I didn't look into it much before researching it for this episode. But when it was suggested to us, I looked into it really quickly, but I didn't realize how young everybody was. Yes, so young. Very, 
they're all younger than us, <laughs> mm-hmm. except for one. <laughs> so young, but also so experienced. Like, yeah. how could this have happened? Other than was it natural force, like an avalanche, or was it something else? And just because I failed to mention in the beginning, the goal of the expedition was to reach a certain mountain that was 6.2 miles north of the site. And the route was estimated as a category three, which in February would be the most difficult time to traverse. So they were trying to kind of break new ground, go to an area that nobody that or no Russian that they knew of had ever skied in that area. So there's just kind of, you know, a group of young people trying to have an adventure. There were two women and the rest were men. And it was really, I started looking at photos and it is, I mean, obviously it's heartbreaking no matter what, but mm-hmm. the, from the photos, it looks like they're having so much fun in there. It's like a group of 20 year olds from today, you know, with a camera yeah. and they're just like yeah. making goofy faces and they're playing tricks and they're just being goofy. I know. And I think that's another crazy factor in this hike is that it was actually pretty well documented. Oh, yeah. Um, up until that point. So and it's kind of eerie thinking about, you know, did they could they have recorded what happens? Like what happens? Are there answers? But yeah, they're just trying to have a good time. And granted, I will say, I don't know, hiking in February in Russia. I'm not intrigued. No. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I'm not entirely sure why they chose that time of year. I mean, they were on break. So I guess they kind of just like Mm. took that time to do something adventurous. Yeah. And again, I think they wanted to do it for the skiing. So I guess you would have to do it then. Mm -hmm. But they all had personal or a lot of them had personal diaries and journals. And then apparently there was a communal journal. So a lot of the stuff that we know is from those journals and how they abruptly stopped on the night of February 1st. Yes. Yes. Uh, Just so many questions, but not a lot of answers. Right. And because of this, because there's just really not a lot of information on what happened. You know, there's so many theories that have been put forward to account for the unexplained deaths. And we're going to talk about that. But before we do, we're first going to hear a word from our sponsor. We are back. So let's dive into the multiple theories that are out there. And then at the end, Shin and I will give you our little two cents of what we think, where our tinfoil hat is. So the first theory is a classic, in my personal opinion. And something that I was saying to Shannon earlier, this is something we would love to do an episode on. So Hopefully we'll have a chance to dive in a little bit to this theory, but it is the Yeti or local tribesman theory. So the Yeti is kind of like this, should I say mythological creature? Yeah. 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 Kind of known to live in the snow and the mountains, a Sasquatch, if you will, a Bigfoot. And some people think that this Yeti or maybe even a local tribesman had actually gone in to their campsite and was the reason for their deaths. 
One reason why people think that is because there was a photograph found in one of the hikers' camera, and it has a dark figure advancing through the snowy forest. And it has this hunched and menacing feature to itself with no facial features. So people think that that could be the Yeti or maybe a local tribesman. There was actually initial speculation that the indigenous Mansai people or Mansi who were reindeer herders local to the area had attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their land. So this could have been a no-no zone and the hikers ended up being somewhere where they shouldn't have been. So what ended up happening was several of the people who were from this area were interrogated, but the investigation indicated that the nature of the deaths did not support the hypothesis. Only the hikers' footprints were visible and they showed no sign of like a hand-to-hand struggle. And we kind of talked about that earlier. This force that definitely didn't seem like it was from a human per se, but Mm -hmm. something. So the idea of the local people or even the Yeti is very low on this scale of theories. Right, exactly. Yeah, they were, again, the wounds were just too severe to be inflicted upon by a human so it seemed to be pretty ruled out early on to not be the local tribesmen Mm -hmm. and I think that's like fair for them to try to see if it was someone I think it's an easy answer Mm -hmm. probably the most easy to digest one because the theories that we get into later are a little bit more strange I guess you could say So the next theory dives into the government slash KGB theory. So there's this guy named Yuri Kuncevich who attended the students' funerals as the boy argued that the students had been asked by a Western agent named The Mole to photograph a secret missile test. And after doing so, they were murdered by drunken convicts guarding the pass. Then they moved the tent 1.5 kilometers to an impractical place. That was done by a mop-up team of soldiers. They had several um, helicopters nearby. So this is where the theory of there have been some... Government. Painted. Yeah, Yeah. foul play. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, Dilatov's own sister said her parents had told her at the time of her brother's disappearance and death, quote, they were sure, she said, that the military was somehow involved. So people really thought this was some higher up power. Kind of connecting into this theory is with like the KGB. And it centers on a guy who was a part of the group, Zolotarov. And he was the one who joined the group at the last minute. He was the 38-year-old when the rest of them were in their 20s. Yeah, which is like, you know, valid. It's a little strange. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely the outlier. Yeah. And he was added in by like the school administration and the students didn't really know him at all. Like all the rest of them were kind of friends and handpicked by Igor. And then he was just kind of thrown in there. Gives me 21 Jump Street vibes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember that movie. I'm pretty sure that's the name of the movie where it's... um. Um, oh gosh, Jonah Hill and oh, yeah, yeah, Hanning Tatum, and they're like mm-hmm. pretend to be students, but then they're actually like spies or government workers or whatever. <laughs> um, kind of gives me that vibe. So maybe the, or this theory is valid. 
So there was a book that was published in Russia that claims that he and two other skiers happened to actually be agents on an assignment to meet with a group of CIA operatives to furnish them with deliberately misleading information. So there were also samples of clothing contaminated by radioactive isotopes that were to be offered as bait. So the CIA agents discovered the deception, killed them, and staged the scene. Meeting gone bad slash there happened to be guys on this hike that just were just supposed to be here for fun. And then all of a sudden it just got serious and it it, the theory tries to tie in with the radioactive, you know, samples, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but we don't really know what these people are doing. So could it be possible that they really staged all of this? It seems elaborate. <laughs> it definitely seems very elaborate. Yeah. Especially with like all the players. I don't know. Could they all be that connected? Mm-hmm. It's a little, again, far-fetched. But, you know, who knows? Some people think that that's true. A little bit more of a tactic tying in with the government was, could this have been a missile launch that had gone bad? Slash, could they have been attacked? So the idea is that a missile launch of some kind went very wrong, inflicting severe injuries on some of the skiers and forcing the group to flee their tent, at which point they either froze to death or were killed by military observers. So Yuri Yudin, who was, he was, um, there were actually 10 people on the trip originally, but then this guy, Yuri Yudin, he had sciatica and his joints were acting up a couple days in. And so he had to turn around and go back. So that's why we were left with nine and all nine died. So he had to leave the trip, but he also said that the deaths were not natural exactly which is like how insane thank god he had this i know this thing this hindrance actually literally saved his life right and so not long before he died in 2013 he declared that his teammates had been taken from the tent at gunpoint and murdered so there was a girl named dubina and he said that she may have had her tongue cut out by the killers because she was the most outspoken of the group, which gives me like Hunger Game vibes. I don't know if you remember that character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, she was the one, her body was the one that was found without a tongue. Mm-hmm. Just so you're aware. Proponents of the weapons test theory claims from people in the region that they had seen the flashes of light, which we had talked about. Mm-hmm in the direction of the mountain. So people were like, yeah, something really funky happens that day, weirdly enough. Could it have been like the missiles? In 2008, a three foot long piece of metal was found in the area. According to the Diet Love Foundation, which took possession of it, the metal is part of a Soviet ballistic missile. Military tests would explain the radioactivity of recovered clothing. So there was a guy who was gave an interview to a newspaper in 2013 where he recalled back in the day finding it suspicious when he and his colleagues were instructed to test recovered items for radiation. He sent a letter to his supervisors asking why radiation was relevant. Like this, you know, you're probably thinking just a search team, like why would that be an issue? In response, the deputy prosecutor general met with the team and he said that the official dodged questions about weapons testing and ordered them to tell people that the deaths were accidental curious Mm -hmm. 
And in 1990, a prosecutor had published an article in which he claimed while compiling in his 1959 report, he'd been pressured not to include his views on what happened. And this article is called The Enigma of the Fireballs and said that the skiers had been killed by heat rays or balls of fire associated with UFOs. In his original examination of the scene, he found that trees with unusual burn marks, which confirmed some kind of heat ray, say, or a powerful force whose nature is completely unknown, at least to us, acted selectively on specific objects. And again, going back to the photographs, because this was a pretty well-documented trip, the camera showed flares and streaks of light against a black background. Although others have argued that this is just a natural thing when you like run out of film, there mm, tends mm-hmm. to be some streaks of light. So it's kind of hard to say, is that true? Or is that just from the camera itself? But it's just like you said earlier, Shannon, very curious about these cover-ups and like, could this have been linked? I don't know. Yeah, and it's hard because this guy's coming out years and years and years later and he's retired and you just kind of wonder like, how's your brain? Like, how's your mind? How do you remember these things? Because memory is a tricky thing. And yeah, I mean, do we believe him? Do we not believe Mm -hmm. him? I like how UFOs got brought up. You always have to bring (laughs) an alien somewhere. Uh, gotta we got yeti we got ufos we got the government this is a good episode people i do have to say i read an article that started off with talking about how not superstitious how um i guess skeptical the russian people are in general compared to americans and how conspiracy theories are much more much better accepted there and fully mm-hmm. believed. And I saw something like 57% of the population believes that the moon landing was faked in Russia. Oh, wow. It's so interesting how their people are way more skeptical than we are. Yeah, it's like part of the culture, I guess, question mark. Or at least that's what this article was saying. So, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, if you want to believe that something freaky with the government happened, you're going to believe that something freaky with the government happened. So that's kind of why these theories are interesting, because people do actually really believe them. Mm-hmm, for sure. It's like, if you can't explain it, here's the card. It's the government card. Right, right, right. It's the KGB. <laughs> it's the mm-hmm. CIA. Yeah, we should make deck of cards. <laughs> it's like, yes. Oh. <laughs> it's the KGB. And then, like, <laughs> UFO. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> But should we get into the, uh, I guess, better accepted theory? Mm -hmm. Let's do it. Okay. So this theory is the avalanche theory. And it's popular. It is what the government blamed it on, which, you know, we do have to be skeptical, especially if Mm. they were the culprit. Just a healthy (laughs) dose. Just a healthy dose, a little sprinkle. (laughs) But people were very unsatisfied with this theory for four main reasons. And that's because there was contradictory evidence to the fact of an avalanche even being there. So number one was that there was no obvious signs of an avalanche or debris in the area that the search team found 26 days after the incident. 
Number two, the average slope angle above the tent location was not sufficiently steep for an avalanche, which has to be 30 degrees or higher, and this slope was less than 30 degrees. And can I just say, if anybody wants to do a little research, my goodness, the amount of math calculations I saw trying (laughs) to calculate when is an avalanche most likely to happen, this insane formula. I'm like, wow, you really can just apply math to truly anything. Really, really can. The third point was that a hypothetical avalanche released during the night. This was nine hours after they had set up camp. And that's not really, it's kind of like a long period of time after disturbing the snow. It shouldn't take nine hours for an avalanche to happen. It's kind of apparently a little bit quicker than that. And four, the chest and skull injuries were not typical for avalanche victims, which I thought was kind of interesting because I would have thought that Mm. extreme pressure would be common with an avalanche. But apparently it's more of an asphyxiation thing than a blunt trauma. Those are the main reasons why people had problems with this avalanche theory. But a... Investigation was called in 2019, a Swiss geotechnical engineer and the head of the snow avalanche simulation lab, which is an interesting title to have. You are the head of the avalanche simulation lab in Switzerland. They began working on this case. And I have to say, I found a little tidbit that made me a little sad was that this geotechnical engineer, I saw a quote that his wife was Russian, and when he told her that he was working on the Dyatlov Pass incident, he said that she, for the first time, he felt that she really respected him. Like, yikes. How rough yikes. is that? Yeah. But anyway, these two guys, <laughs> they really dug into the case, and they actually found that the slope of the mountain was misleading. So... The snow makes it seem less than 30 degrees. Like if you were there, you would be like, oh yeah, no, this is definitely less than 30 degrees. This is definitely safe to pitch a tent on. And that's what a lot of people seem to have a problem with because they couldn't grapple with the fact that these are experienced hikers. They should have known better. Like, you know, like people are just like, why did they do this? Why, 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 why? Mm -hmm. But this would explain at least this portion of it. It was actually like the actual rock of the mountain was steeper than 30 degrees or it was right at 30 degrees. So like right at that threshold. But with the snow on top, it made it seem flatter than it was. So they unknowingly made an error and theoretically an avalanche could have formed with that. But again, the other point was, well, it didn't happen immediately. So how did that happen? Well, this is where the catabatic, catabotic winds. I don't know. I feel like I'm just American. I'm being like catabatic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The catabotic winds come in. So the catabotic winds are winds that carry high pressure air down a slope with gravity to lower pressure. So basically it's just this big, strong wind that goes down slopes fast. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Although there's no snow uh, recorded the night of February 1st, 
the Trekkers diaries do mention heavy winds. So that was the other thing. They're like, how did, how was their avalanche? There was no increase in load on the mountain. Mm-hmm. There shouldn't have been an avalanche, but there were heavy winds. So the winds could have potentially, the winds with the tent could have potentially triggered a slab avalanche, which is like a smaller avalanche. And the researcher simulator estimates that it could have been about the size of an SUV. And it kind of just speeds down and hits the tent. Apparently, one of the researchers was watch- was watching the Disney movie Frozen. And mm-hmm. he was impressed by how the animators depicted the avalanche. He's like, that's actually very realistic. Like, how did they do that? And he got in contact with them. And he got their computer codes for the animation. And then he tried to recreate it with the conditions that they knew were on this mountain. And he found that this smaller, compact chunk of avalanche could have done this damage. Mm. And then they also compiled that with data from the 70s from the uh, car company GMC. And back then, they actually did cadaver testing. So when they were testing for designing seat belts, they used cadavers and they placed them under different sized forces just to see what kind of injuries would occur. And some of the tests, they put them under these rigid supports and that caused trauma like we saw at the Dyatlov Pass, you know, like the compressed chest Mm -hmm. and the skull injuries because that, that rigid support kind of like... made it rigid you know like it just made it Mm -hmm. rigid so you didn't have as much give what they actually did what the hikers did was they placed their bedding on top of their skis so they did have these rigid supports under their bodies unintentionally creating kind of like a rigid impact from a small avalanche potentially could give them these kind of injuries some say that the small amounts of radiation on the bodies may have come from thorium from gas lanterns, which apparently back in the day, a lot of gas lanterns slash maybe all of gas lanterns had this thorium in them to make them, I think I read that it made them burn brighter. Mm-hmm. So they're thinking that maybe that's where the radiation came from because they were using those gas lanterns. But those were, that all happened recently. Like that article that I was reading came out, I think in January of 2021. With all of these points. Crazy. Yeah. One thing I do have to say counter to all that was, although they said that the chest and the head injury could have not been fatal in the moment, Mm. it would, it could, you know, obviously over time kill you. They did note that none of the footprints coming out of the tent, nobody was being dragged. We'll just put it that way. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, like everybody was well enough to run out of the tent. And you think that if you had blunt trauma to the chest and the head, you know, somebody's going to be dragged out of there. You, you're not doing so well that you can run. So there is that little bit. And then also I saw that the radiation thing, it was hard to tell how much radiation was on the clothing. In some articles I read, it was a small amount. Some was a large amount, you know, it's Mm-hmm. depends on the source but they did say that if it was still on the clothing three weeks after the fact 
and they were by a stream so the water should have kind of like taken it away it was a lot more radiation than what was present on the clothing Mm-hmm. which in that case it couldn't have been the gas lantern because it was very small amounts from the gas lantern but again that's just another food for thought the explanation which i thought immediately and i don't know why it took so long in the research to find this but the soft tissue injuries of the eyeballs and the tongue mm-hmm. they say that that happened from you know wild animals getting to the bodies because I mean, those bodies weren't found until May. So it was multiple right, months. Right. Which I thought immediately. I'm like, well, wouldn't the animals like, immediately go for go the soft for tissue? It. Yeah. But that's what that explanation is. Oh, so fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's like all a lot to unpack. It seems like such an easy, I don't want to say easy, but like, oh, case closed, right? Just an avalanche. But there's mm-hmm. also so much skepticism around that. And we still don't know 100% if that is the true answer. Right. Because I, when I was reading this explanation, I was like, this is all great. This all seems to line up. Right. However, these conditions had to be so, quote unquote, perfect for this to happen that it's almost Mm -hmm. like, are we reaching, like, are we trying to make this an avalanche because we want it so badly to be an avalanche? Right. Because it's like, oh, just so happened that they pitched the tent at the the bare minimum avalanche slope. And then, oh, that night happened to be windy. And then, oh, they were hurt, but not hurt enough to stay in the tent. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, like, it's just like a lot of factors that would have Oh, that was the other thing. They it's something said that if they had stayed in the tent, they probably would have survived. Mm-hmm. But if they heard an avalanche coming, the loud cracks of the avalanche, them being more experienced hikers, like they are fully afraid of this avalanche. Mm-hmm. So they kind mm-hmm. of like drop everything to go out. And maybe if you were a little bit less advanced you would have stayed in the tent and maybe thought nothing of the cracks or maybe like would have underestimated it Mm -hmm. they were so advanced that they were terrified of the avalanche and they ran out yeah it's just wild to think about that could their expertise have actually hindered them like could that Mm -hmm. be the reason why they died yeah because they knew how bad it could be that they right tried Exactly. They all evacuated to ground that was safe from the avalanche and then like took the shelter in the woods, started a fire and then dug a snow cave. And then when that's when like everything started to happen and just like mm-hmm. all hell just broke loose. And I mean, it would make sense if the small avalanche fell on their tent, then they would have to cut themselves out of the tent mm-hmm. if, you know, the mm-hmm. door to the tent was blocked. So that makes sense to me. But also, why would you run so far? Because they almost ran a mile. It was almost a mile downhill. So if it's the size of an SUV, like I get that you're terrified and it's scary and you don't, you you know, it's nighttime. You might not know that it's only the size of an SUV. But a mile is a pretty decent chunk in your bare feet in sub-zero temperatures, you know? Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. So, yeah, it just adds that kind of extra question of, was it something different? Was it not that? Like, why would you run so far away from mm-hmm. your gear? Mm-hmm. People also looked like they kind of like split up. What happened at this spot? What happened at this spot? What made you keep going? And one thing that didn't, I didn't see in any of the research, you tell me if you saw it, but because there were five people that were seemingly, they died before the other four. 
And the other four were the ones with the severe injuries. So I'm like, well, how did the severe injuries live longer than the people that were quote unquote fine? So Mm -hmm. I'm like, were they all fine? And they all ran from the tent because that's what the footprints look like. But then the trauma happened afterwards, you know, Mm -hmm. five of Mm -hmm. them died from hypothermia. And then at some point, maybe that's when the avalanche happened. Like it wasn't on their tent. It was somewhere where they all were. Yeah. But then why are they cutting themselves out of the tent if there's no avalanche at that point? And it's like, are there two two small avalanches? Mm Mm-hmm. It's just a lot, a lot of questions. And I think that's where everybody wondering what happened because there's so many. It's spooky because you can kind of picture it and it seems mm-hmm. super eerie and you don't know what's happening and you're just on the mountain slash in the woods. Spooky stuff is happening. It's almost like in every theory, there's something to counter it. You yeah. Know? Like it makes that to make sense. But then this one part doesn't make sense. And then they're like, that one part that doesn't make sense is a big part that doesn't make sense. You know, right. it doesn't fit in the storyline. So it's like, what happened? It's also just wild too to know that everything was so well recorded. There had just been one person to like write down, give us an insight. What happened? What's the clue? And then on top of all of this, they happened to be on a mountain called Dead Mountain. So it's just, yeah, who cares? So where is your tinfoil hat out of all of these theories? My tinfoil hat is an avalanche, but I don't think we have maybe the timeline 100% correct. Mm-hmm. I think the other ones are kind of far-fetched. It is, I don't know, because like when the family believes that it's the government, it's like, oof, that's kind of rough. Yeah. But I don't, like, is that some sort of coping mechanism? I don't know. You want to believe that your kid was prepared enough to deal with the elements, and so you want to believe that it was some other force, question mark? But I don't know. It was a pretty extreme environment. And obviously extreme time of year. So it's not completely out of the blue that something bad would happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't think it says anything to their lack of preparedness or their lack of expertise. I think it was just a lot of bad things happened at once. But like we alluded to, there were a lot of still a lot of question marks even with that. How about you? I agree. I agree with you. My tinfoil hat is on the avalanche. Yeah, the timeline is just really curious. Like, I don't know if we've hit the nail on the head with what exactly happened. That's what I want to know. The answers, of course, everybody wants to know. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, how did how this happen? It sounds like there was like one bad event that led to another. And it's just like a series of unfortunate events that just all happened yeah. all together. Oh, there was something else that I was reading about. There's some sort of psychological thing that can happen with certain winds. Like you can't even hear it, but it affects the tiny hairs in your ears with this certain kind of wind. And it kind of makes you go a little crazy. And so that could have caused them to run out. But again, like Mm -hmm. what are the chances that there are these specific winds with these Mm -hmm. that also cause a specific avalanche that's not a normal avalanche but it's a different kind of avalanche and it's different kind of wind and it's (laughs) like and like everyone's impacted by this yeah right right yeah I don't know if that's something that would happen universally I also saw freaking something that was like briefly that the local tribes uh, men around there they have some sort of hallucinogenic mushroom and so they're saying that they dry them from trees and these students they 
saw the mushrooms and they took the mushrooms and then that's why they acted impulsively and i'm like i just like mm, yeah sure in some dimension maybe that could have happened but like, <laughs> yeah yeah like some reality i don't know but i guess your your guess is as good as mine but yeah it's just one of those cases i feel like will be unsolved yeah for a long period of time if mm-hmm. ever it's a spooky it's one spooky. a little bit different kind of spooky but spooky nonetheless. Exactly. We just don't have the answers. Well, let us know, everyone. What are your thoughts? Where is your tinfoil hat? Because we would love to know where it is because so many people believe so many different theories and each kind of has its own valid, you know, point. So we'd love to hear from you. Follow us on Instagram at Pod, B-A-R-E Roots Pod. And we'll see you next week or the week after that for our last spooky season episode. So we hope you guys enjoyed this one. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.